Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to a special bonus podcast from Virgin Media Business, the ultra-fast broadband company. The Virgin Media Business team were recently at TEDx in Manchester and it was a day devoted to sharing great ideas, challenging norms and expanding horizons. We hosted a live podcast at the event to tap into a wealth of business and entrepreneurial minds discussing the secrets of disruptive business. Focusing on the themes of patterns, Virgin's Chris Reed was joined in discussion by Jennifer Alkuri from cybersecurity consultancy Hacker House, Nick Carey, the founder of leading Bitcoin software company Blockchain, which was one of Virgin Media Business's fast-track disruptor 10 businesses, and oceanographer, physicist and broadcaster Dr Helen Chertsky from University College London. Let's head to that stage. Firstly, I just want to say hello and thanks very much for everyone to coming to the TEDx here in Manchester. Over the next half an hour or so, we're going to be looking at the secrets of disruptive business. I'm Chris Reed, and uh, I'm surrounded by three of today's most excellent panellists. So I'm going to ask the panellists to introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about why they're here, and then we'll go on to talk about some of the um, specific questions. Firstly, on my far left, what's your name? Where did you come from? I'm Dr. Helen Cherowski. I came from near here, actually. I was brought up in Altrincham, but I'm now in London, and I work at University College London. I'm a physicist. And in amongst your physicists, you've been an oceanographer, <laughs> uh, a writer, a broadcaster. How do you, you define yourself as a physicist? Well, that's first on the list, right? There's a thing that you hold inside, which is kind of the core of your identity. And then you keep adding things because that's the fun thing about life. You can, you know, express different parts of your, your sort of personality and your identity. But physicist is, is the one in the middle somewhere. This, that's the stick of rock, that's right? That's the stick of you rock. Know, yeah. Excellent. So if we cut you, you bleed physics. Which is Not a lovely thought. Not that we will do. Yeah, is that a threat? Anyway. <laughs> And you're looking at recently at the physics of everyday things, which yeah. we'll, we'll come on to in a bit of detail, I think. It's, I think the, the everyday world is undervalued. Everyone's so busy trying to do posh things and weigh out things and pushing boundaries that they're forgetting about the really fundamental oh. things, which still matter because they're still really fundamental. And no one else talks about it, so I do. Give us a physics fact. What's one of the best physics facts about everyday things? Uh... The reason pigeons bob their heads is a physics thing. The reason pigeons bob their heads is that they can't see fast enough to move their head as they walk. So what they do is they shove their head forward and then they keep their head in the same place and walk their body to catch up. And it's because of the way their optics works. And we laugh at the pigeons doing that, but we only see a tiny bit slower. So the interesting physics is that is that things happen on lots of timescales and the pigeons brain works just too slowly for the speed it walks at, which is extremely funny, but we're not very far behind. <laughs> Nick, top that. Uh, a physics like fact. Uh, <laughs> no, um, would you just like to explain a bit about where you're from and blockchain? Yeah, good afternoon. So my name is Nicholas Carey. I'm the co-founder of a firm called Blockchain. I'm also the co-founder of uh, a nonprofit called skiesthelimit.org, where we focus on matching at-risk youth with mentors and advisors. 
Um, so it's nice to be back up here in the north, actually. Um, blockchain was co-founded just in York, and so it's kind of like coming back to our roots here. We now have offices in London, New York, and um, London, where our headquarters is for Europe, and uh, it's been a pretty wild few years. We're actually one of the fastest growing technology companies in the world right now. We're adding about 150,000 to 200,000 new users a week in over 160 countries. And so I've had about three transatlantic flights this week, so if I fall asleep at the table, I'm counting on someone else here to throw some water on me. Um, but I am very grateful to be sharing a little bit about um, what I think is one of the most interesting topics, which is what the future of money will look like. And so that's what I'll be talking about today. Uh, just for the uninitiated, I'm sure there's no uninitiated here at all, but can you explain blockchain in a minute, two minutes? What's, <laughs> I'll the, try. what's the shortest amount of time you can explain what the blockchain is? In? Yeah, it used to take me about 30 minutes to do it, so I'll be much faster today. But basically, a blockchain is a type of technology that lets people all over the world send and receive and record transactions. And it's a really compelling innovation because we have a record-keeping system that's open and fair for all to use. And the first sort of prototype of this technology is to use it for money. And it's neat. It relies on the principles of a peer-to-peer -peer network, just like the things that let us talk to each other all over the world nearly for free. We now have that technology to reinvent the way finance works. And if you think about the world today, there are all these banks and all these merchant processors and forex markets that harvest value out of the economy. What if we could repurpose all of that money and put it back in the hands of people? And so uh, that's one of the more interesting aspects of this technology, but fundamentally, it's a record-keeping system that keeps track of who owns what. So once you have that, money is just one of the applications. You could do all kinds of other things on this type of system, like reinvent governance, or potentially have uh, property rights systems that allow anyone on Earth to record who and what they own. And uh, this uh, technology will fundamentally get integrated into the fabric of our society over the next coming years, and it's probably one of the most compelling things that's happening in the world today. Wow. Uh, Jennifer, would you like to explain your, your background? I'm Jennifer Arcuri. I've moved here from California six years ago. I ran a series of tech policy events called the InnoTech Network in London and then uh, launched Hacker House last year after I got tired of seeing the same old consultancies doing, producing the same kind of sausage factories of security and wanted to question the status quo on how we utilize and aggregate cyber skills in a new and innovative way. So Hacker House is of the hackers by the hackers. We do exactly as they say on the tin. And uh, I, my whole mission is to change this kind of stigma demonized word that is one of the most uh, sought after skills on the market right now. Thank you very much. And you encourage young people predominantly to uh, be involved in ethical hacking. Yes. Um, and is that, uh, is that a, you know, are they physically in one place to do that? Is it a global thing? Is it, uh, how, how, how does, practically, how does that work? Sure. We started with a little IRC server that kind of blew up overnight by giving kids places to actually hack online um, using various sites. And then we kind of made our own capture the flag system inside that. And then we did a, uh, we started running a series of hacker retreats, community events the last year. Again, just to figure out what exactly we could offer the market that would be different from what the big guys uh, do. And what I found was a lot of the talent that would come work with me, they would, would never pass through a hiring process. They would never actually get through the recruitment at any of the big four consultancies. And it was such a shame because the, this was some of the best talent in this particular industry. And because they could do so much more in an environment on their terms, i.e. not work nine to five, sometimes hackers work 3 a.m. to 3 p.m. Um, you know, and from the basement in hoodies eating pizza. And that's just the way they work. Um, and 
And we found that if we could tap into those kind of demographic, that subset of skills, that actually we could do a lot more uh, than just run a bunch of scans and press a button. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Well, w welcome to all three of you. Um, one of the things that I wanted to cover off today and, and look about was actually patterns and patterns of everyday life. I mean, Helen, you're a physicist. Hackers are looking at breaking patterns, I guess, and blockchain is, you know, I won't belittle it by calling it a pattern, but there's certainly those sorts of things in there. Um, here's a question for, for all three of you. Are our lives too ruled by patterns, too ruled by algorithms? There are now people who, you know, experts at manipulating us. We heard from uh, about some of that this morning. How do we actually step beyond that and uh, make it useful both in our personal and professional business lives? So I think there's two types of pattern and um, it's very important to distinguish between them. The patterns that, for example, I work with as a physicist and by pattern I mean that laws of physics, so things like thermodynamics and rotational dynamics and Newton's laws of motion, they are patterns uh, in how the world works and they are not going to change. They are, they are the framework on which everything else hangs. And so there's a type of pattern which, which is that framework. We are human, we are about this tall, you know, when we drop an apple, it does this. There are patterns that we need to understand that set up the framework we've got to work with. And then there are the patterns that we lay on top. And those are the ones that can shift and change and we can be innovative with. And I think it's really important to distinguish between those two because you need to understand the framework as well as you possibly can because that's what you're stuck with. Which is, but that's also great because it's constraints that drive creativity, right? If someone stuck you in a room with everything you wanted, you would find it very hard to be creative. But if someone sticks you in a room with, you know, two raspberries, a clarinet, and I don't know, uh, a dog, and says, be creative. You've got to work with those constraints. And so I think it's really important to distinguish between the fixed patterns and the shifting patterns that we create because one breeds the other, but we need understanding of one to make the other. Yeah. I find there are two kinds of people, those that like patterns um, and that see patterns exactly as they are and those that like to break those patterns. And I often encourage that kind of breaking and entering kind of mindset because it is, that it is the um, looking at things differently or turning them inside out that I think sometimes can actually break us out of our routines and give us something either better or different than what we first thought would end happen. And is that something you find comes naturally to the young people that you're working with or is it? Absolutely. Uh, so there, is, it a, is it challenging the status quo? Is it, a, is it an act of rebellion these days and when, when, when so much else is, is, is pre-programmed and we live in such bubbles? Yeah, but I think it, I, I mean, to the point of my talk earlier, it is actually, it is, is fundamental because it is one thing to think we all have iPhones and all these iPhones run on, you know, updates, you know, that we all get from Apple and we have to, you know, connect onto a Wi-Fi. And so there's certain patterns to which we use our phone, but actually these phones are connected to our microwaves and our brakes of our car and the handbags and this kind of connected universe of, of things um, is exactly the same thing that makes us vulnerable. And so what I encourage is breaking in and understanding how, you know, where, what, what, where is the weakest link? What is uh, potentially vulnerable? Because if you don't look at it, some bad guy will. And then that's where you can get in, um, in serious detrimental trouble. So looking for the weakest link, that seems like a great opportunity to introduce blockchain. I mean, you spend huge amounts of, of resources trying to be one step ahead of that weakest link, trying to understand what those patterns are and, and beat it. Is this something that's uh, familiar to you? Yeah, maybe taking a, a business perspective on this. Um, you know, human beings are pattern-forming machines. Like, we look at things and we discover patterns in them. And I think, to Dr. Helen's point, you know, we need to understand the ingredients and the physics and the math of things. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, human beings that think differently 
are really at the innovation spectrum. A lot of people like to call themselves disruptors, and that's neat. They can go in and disrupt um, a local market or go and disrupt a retail chain or some other type of business. But true innovation, inspiration, is really difficult to do. And that's the kind of thing that researchers are doing. Um, and so for me, when we are hiring people, um, one of the questions that we're always going to ask is, teach me something you know an awful lot about. And uh, that's one of the most exciting questions I like to ask people during an interview process because I get to learn from them what they really care about. And uh, if that's in alignment with innovation, then they're going to be successful in our firm because we have to continually reimagine the way the world's going to look just a few years down the road in order for us to successfully navigate the industry we're in. Uh, fascinating stuff. And what's, what's some of the best things that you've learned then when you've uh, been interviewing these people? Um, well. A couple other interview questions that I might suggest um, people ask if they're in the process of hiring folks is, what is the hardest thing you've ever done? And you get really interesting answers to that question too. Um, people will talk about personal struggles, they'll talk about physical endurance, uh, they may discuss um, a personal tragedy that they've had. And uh, those things can be really telling for the types of personalities that can really endure the difficulties of building businesses. Entrepreneurship is not the easy path. There are much easier ways to go out and make money. Um, entrepreneurship is a crucible, and you need to be able to essentially have some degree of capability for suffering. And so understanding where that threshold is for people uh, makes, it more cap makes it easier to make sure that you're hiring people. They're going to be able to gut it out and get through the tough stuff. So is your business still at the stage where you're, you're looking actively for, to hire more entrepreneurs, for people to constantly challenge you guys at the top table, to, to look for those patterns and, and, and try and beat them, I guess? We make sure that every person we hire is at least 50% better than the people that are already in the company. So in a lot of ways, I don't think I'd even be able to get hired by my own company anymore. Um, so that's a good thing. Uh, I think for us, you know, ultimately, we're in the game of collecting and cultivating as much human talent as possible. And I think if you've got really dedicated, intelligent people in your company, you can go be successful in a lot of different industries. And so that's our perspective on it. So Jennifer, um, Nick there was touching on, um, on talent and finding great people. You know, when, when you're, when you're you know, setting up Hacker House and when you're looking at um, and characters, do you, do you think you need to find more like-minded people? Do the best things come together no. when you're finding the opposites? Absolutely How, how does not. that work for you? Yeah, no, I don't want the people that go and work at the big corporates. That corporate culture is boring. That model's broken, and it doesn't work. If it was, why are we having such problems being attacked? Every day we get more and more stories of someone being hacked. And if it was so great, then why don't we call the big corporates that charge you two grand a day? That is lame. What we work on is, is getting those kids that would never, ever be looked at, right? The guys that sit, and they don't necessarily, maybe they don't have the best people skills. You know, maybe they've never even talked to a girl, but they have this ability on a computer that is so amazing and inspiring. And those are the guys that we tap into. And we didn't do it by running a big job fair or with the biggest budgets by going out and, you know, like holding government's hand. We actually just got online and started talking. And we said, who wants to do some cool stuff? And, uh, you know, a little bit different. And of course, you're always going to get those guys that are borderline creepy. And, and you, but you always want to invite them in and say, you know what, you've actually got a set of skills that could actually make you so much more money with so much more opportunity doing it on the right side of the law you have no time to break the law get down and get this server hacked right so this is what we do is we actually go out of our way to find the weirdest most bizarre people um, that think not in patterns but understand patterns recognize them and then find ways innately to break them yeah and, and are the stereotypes the people you work with exact 
exactly that. I mean, you, you, you've talked about mostly guys in their rooms on their own, three o'clock in the morning. They sound like the people I went to university with. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of great girls too, actually. And girls, there's, what I like to say about cybersecurity is it really needs all different ways of thinking. It's not just, a, you know, even though it's a male dominated world, that's a real shame because actually women bring a whole new subset of skills to this just, it, just by being feminine, just by multitasking, just by the way their brains work. Um, it's just that a lot of this, a lot of women, especially going through school, when you're taught physics, engineering, and mathematics, aren't necessarily, and boys and girls for this matter, you're not actually taught about why these matter in real life. So a lot of times this is just force fed down students' throats, but they don't actually draw a practical implication on how, if you understand the basics of mathematics, physics, and engineering, there is not a system in this planet that you can't, just by design, hack into or break into. So these things, I, I really go out of my way to champion. I love meeting female physicists uh, to be able to understand that it's not just about you know the status quo skills, but understanding that what you might have, your superpower, might actually be the thing that is needed to cause real innovation in an industry that's desperate for change. There's a really interesting um, sort of conflict here, though, which is that everyone, you know, students come into universities, the ones I see, and the student, and, and people say, you've got, you could change the world, you have the potential to change the world, and people are in so much of a hurry to get on with doing the next big thing that I think what is being lost right at this moment in time is, is the foundation on which to build. So what I see is students coming in, especially now in this country, they're paying fees um, for the first time, really, and <laughs> they're saying, well, you know, I expect to come out of this being able to break the world system. And you go, no, you got a degree. That means you know some things, but you still have to learn. And I see a real sort of tension between the time people spend learning the things that humans have been fighting for centuries. You know, a huge amount of effort has gone in to working out how these basic things work. And instead of teaching that all the time, you know, there's this focus on doing new things which are immediate in the world. But I feel that there's such a rush to, to change patterns and change the system that not enough time is given to understanding the current system because that's not seen as sexy and forward thinking. But actually, if you want to change a system, you have to understand it. And I see a real tension between, because we've all got a finite amount of time, there's a real tension between how much time do I just spend just understanding what already exists and how much time do I go, I've got an idea and I've got an idea. and Because quite often those ideas, if you know a little bit more and you look at them, you go, if you knew the system, you would understand why that's not going to work. But you're throwing ideas out and you'll think you're really cool. And there's a real tension, I think. Yeah. Can I add to that? Yeah, sure. One of the great point because one of the things that we forget is that academic footprint of you know understanding you know the basics of radio communication like let's wind back the clock before things became smart just understanding morse code radio frequency analysis all this stuff if we don't understand that then how are we ever supposed to innovate forward and that is a great amazing point because so many people come through the door with their resumes and a bunch of letters behind their name because they regurgitated a bunch of information and passed a test but that doesn't actually equip them with the skills in order to actually break a system or understand that system. When you come to want to work at Hacker House, we ask you what code you've written, how many computers you've assembled or broken into, and can you do it again for us? <laughs> You're listening to a special live podcast from Virgin Media Business, the ultra-fast broadband company, recorded live at TEDx in Manchester. Remember, you can get involved in the conversation by tweeting at VMB underscore enterprise. And don't forget to visit virgin.com for more podcasts, entrepreneurial tips and advice. But now let's return to the stage with host Chris Reed, Jennifer Akuri from Hacker House, Nick Carey of Blockchain and physicist Dr. Helen Chersky, 
from University College London discussing patterns and the secrets of disruptive business. Communications has changed so much so fast that actually there's a generation of kids growing up now who are used to pre-vetting everything that they say in terms of writing emails, texts, messages. There might be a huge amount of volume of it, but perhaps are losing the ability to speak, to communicate, to understand the world in, in which, they, in which they, they live in. I mean, is that something you, you spot, Nick, when you're interviewing people? Is it, are you finding that some of the cleverest people are able to, to get their points across in, using, using just their voice? It depends what role they serve in some ways. Um, I think that why I asked the question around being taught something, though, because it shows me whether or not the person can be emotive. And people that are talking about a subject they care an awful lot about are going to be really good at that. And, um, I, you know, communication is a critical skill in an organization. And it comes in a lot of ways. There's written communication, oral, verbal, nonverbal, and probably uh, psychopathic soon. Um, but ultimately, you have to be able to collaborate and coordinate in you know, more complex organizations, and so having some skills is important. There's a, I think, I'm not sure if it was Yale or Harvard, but uh, I read a book recently where some of, the t some of the kids that are coming in are being taken out and given extra courses in telephone skills because they're not used to it. Is that something that, that, that you, you see? We, so um, at the, in the engineering faculty at UCL, our first years all do a design and professional skills course, which includes explicitly things like writing, presentation, uh, these sort of soft skills. And what's interesting is that a lot of the first year engineers come in and they, they sort of resent it. They're like, no, I came here to be an engineer, not to write sentences. And also they really resent being told they can't write sentences, which quite often they can't. And um, there's a problem with the value of communication that in the technical industries, it's often not valued. It, you know, it takes time. It's something that takes real thought. And the other thing is that communication exposes your thinking. And if people haven't thought clearly, you should think before you open your mouth, generally. Almost that's always. That's where I'm going wrong. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> it's a common problem, though, that the, in a world which values puffed-up communication, everything, you know, what people are exposed to is all this puff of people trying to make things sound grandiose. Um, and it's full of people who haven't thought before they open their mouths and and that you need to think first and then you need to take time and then you communicate and that's when you get the good communication which exposes the thinking chain which really contributes something valuable and in a world where you know we heard some statistics this morning about how much information is flying around the internet how much of it is useful the danger is you're trading off quality for quantity and what we need are people who can apply rigorous critical thinking um, and contribute something, not just say something for the sake of saying it. And I think those two things are often confused. We, we've touched on a few things, but something which I want to come back to is this concept of location and co-location and where do great ideas come from? We've got technology now to be able to work uh, across multiple locations at the same time and, and co-create stuff. But in academia for a long time, we've seen that, that some of the best ideas appear to come from you know, hotbeds of learning. I don't know if, about um, Hacker House, what you found, and, and, uh, and from business as well, but I'm really interested to understand and from a business perspective, actually, and from a startup perspective, how these ideas sort of resonate and, and pop up. I mean, where, where did you get the inspiration from for, for Hacker House? Was that talking to other people? Was it just suddenly do that? I ran, event, and I ran an event in London at BAFTA. It was called Legislating Lulsec, Tech Versus a Lifetime in Jail. And I had a bunch of, you know, miscreants, just kidding, um, kids that had had gotten in trouble with the law before and were arrested at 16 and now were 20 and couldn't get jobs in industry. And one of the leading 
consulting firms was our big sponsor and they didn't want to do a panel about this this topic and I said I'm gonna do the panel anyway and then they pulled out which was really tough um, but it made me realize that we had 800,000 views on that three-hour event and I was just so blown away with the appetite uh, for this discussion and I started running these events as you know both before and after um, hack that nights where I'd bring a bunch of you know of these boys over and we would uh, various friends from the entrepreneurial world would have a new SDK or a new app they'd want to test and so they'd bring it to the guys in exchange for swag you know t-shirts and hoodies um, the guys would test it and they would break it apart and they would find new ways to make it work um, a few I mean some of these companies were really like quite successfully they benefited quite a bit from this and what I realized that if there was this whole subset of skills in the world of this massive skills gap that we weren't even touching because the big guys didn't want to deal with them how could I then tap into this amazing um, generation of, of talent because this talent is the same talent that will develop the, the thing that is needed in security the next big thing from security is not going to come from FireEye or Symantec or another Microsoft piece of software it's going to be the 15 year old in his basement that's been mucking around on IRC with a bunch of teenage boys uh, or, and girls that, and, and found something that they put together, they hacked together. But it, crucially, it started physically with you with a group of people, and that's where you saw, saw the yeah. opportunity. Yeah. A great example of that is Pinterest. Pinterest was developed by two hackers. They, they taught themselves to code on that weekend at a hackathon at Hacker Dojo in the Valley. So that was not, and that's like a 13 billion pound company. And blockchain? How, how did blockchain come about? Was that physical? <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of a funny story, so a lot of people don't know it. Uh, we were founded in York in the UK, which is not known as a technical hotbed for innovation. Um, but for us, it worked. It was a place where we were able to concentrate for a little while. But ultimately, um, as organizations get bigger and more complex, um, really, really smart people need to work with other really, really smart people. And uh, in order to recruit uh, amazing talent, you also need to be close to where the best talent in the world is. And so for us, the decision, though it was difficult, to leave the North and move down into London and then also New York City um, proved to be quite the right move. Um, and there's this misconception that you know only Silicon Valley is a place where you can build uh, unicorn companies. And I think that that's being challenged right now. Um, however, there's a good reason why there are so many over there. And it's because some of the smartest people on earth have migrated out west um, to go spend time poking each other's ideas out of the water and you know working together and collaborating. And so there's a whole infrastructure to facilitate the growth of those businesses. And it's a frequently asked question, like how do we cultivate a similar entrepreneurial environment in cities like London or Berlin? And there's a bunch of ingredients that go into that, but partnerships with universities is a critical one. Um, we just announced one this week with the Cryptocurrency Lab. Um, so there, there are a lot of good ways to, to build bridges between industry and academia. And um, ultimately, I do think there's, a, there's some patterning that happens there. But brilliant ideas can come from absolutely anywhere, but ultimately you're going to have to get a lot of other people to agree with you to have major impact. And so your ability to have a microphone to do that or a community to do it from is not necessarily geologically dependent, but it probably still is for a little while. So some things to consider. And in academia? Well, the most important place in any academic department is the tea room. And it's the, thing, the sort of thing that's getting squeezed in modern academia, just like it's getting squeezed anywhere else. But it's got two values. It's got You've got to have the informal conversations and the, what you want is colleagues, not necessarily who do what you do, but who appreciate your approach and who have respect for your way of doing things. And that's the most supportive environment. But 
the, the tea room, the sort of informal conversations are exceptionally valuable. And also, your best ideas normally come when you're doing something else. And the other thing that gets missed out in this, you know, I look at the, I've visited uh, the Googleplex a couple of years ago, and you look at the high pressure environment people are working in. Like, sure, they've got kitchens and gyms on site, but they never leave the site. And I have learned the hard way over many years that the way science gets done is fine, you do your hours of work and then you clear off. And in my case, I do a lot of sports, um, I read a lot, I do all these other things. And the good ideas come when I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing in inverted commas. And I think there's a danger here in this crucible approach of forgetting that we are humans and our brains need downtime. And in order to connect all these ideas together, first of all, you need interpersonal contact. You need to chat to people over a cup of tea when no one's looking at you going, come up with an idea in the next five minutes. And you also need just processing time and I think if you lose those things you're in danger of getting kind of the obvious next idea but you really need sort of deep thought and processing and it, so when you talk about how to encourage this it's it's got to be a human environment not a you know we're going to point sharp nasty things at you until you until an idea pops out the other end. Well I was, I was going to come on to that actually the flip side of, of patterns I guess is serendipity uh, when things just pop up. And I think it's the, you know, the new Apple campus has been designed so that you, you, you have to walk 10 minutes to go to the toilet in some places, purely because they want people to bump into each other to have those sorts of ideas. And when you've done it, you've got to not... So that person who had that idea they were one of 10 who could have had that idea, right? There's also the habit of picking winners. And we see it in business. I think this has been going on for a long time. But in academia, we're really starting to suffer from government agencies going, oh, well, if we're going to pick the winner. Instead of going, you know what? We created an environment that gave 10 different groups an opportunity to make that advance. And one of them did. And that's a success for all 10 because they were all bouncing off each other and pushing off each other. And if you only reward the one, I mean, that was luck. They were one of the 10, right? But you need an environment that allows the community to move forward, not to go, oh, well, they're the winners. So we're going to throw all the others in the bin and give this one all the money to carry forward, um, which is closer to the way it works in business. But you can see it's detrimental in academia because you need, first of all, a variety of ideas, but also you need to appreciate that people can do all the right things and not be the one that won that time. But if you keep them around, they'll have the idea next time. So does that ring true with, yeah. with you? I have to say, I totally agree. I think there's something about this, um, the culture, I guess, that we all live in now, where maybe it's a, uh, something that's come from the West Coast, where actually we're, we're able, perhaps in, in business or the sorts of businesses that we work in, to recognise failure. Perhaps it's more of an American thing and, and to a certain extent to, to reward failure, but crucially to, to learn from it, I think. Which brings me on to sort of the last point that I wanted to, to make, really, which is about the role of entrepreneurism, the role of, of businesses. And I, I mean, entrepreneurism within, within very big businesses and within very, very small businesses. But there is a culture and a mindset that's a, a associated to that. How do you encourage and foster that? 20 years ago, if someone described themselves as an entrepreneur, they probably would have been laughed at. Whereas now, I don't know, do people leave college straight away and say, I'm an entrepreneur, this is what I do? Uh, I just feel that there's more acceptance of it. And if there's more acceptance of it, should we encourage more of it? And if so, how? Well, I'm kind of a big fan of entrepreneurship um, in general. I think that there are a few things as important in the world as having people sort of have sovereignty over their time. And uh, ultimately, if you can have someone sort of develop their own business and the dignity that comes around with doing that, helping their community and hiring other people, you have huge impact um, and especially economic opportunity for people. I believe less in the giant corporate model and I believe a lot more in the distribution of ideas and lots of competition. And so for me, entrepreneurship is probably the most empowering force on earth. It's probably the only one we can really apply to solving huge problems like the ones that we face in socioeconomic issues and climate change um, and political ones. And so we should be inspired and 
and on encouraging young people to, uh, to come up with ideas and not criticize them. And the big one uh, culturally in Europe for me is that there is this cons like consistent mortification of fear here. And it is a very different cultural uh, thing than we see where I come from in the United States. It's not that we uh, celebrate failure, it's just that it's okay. You can screw up and your parents um, are not going to necessarily be too critical of that. And so part of it is the familial dynamic. Um, I think uh, there's a cultural one, but uh, it is important um, to let help people understand and learn from their mistakes so they don't make them again, and then go back out and have the motivation uh, to try again. And uh, our lives are gonna be a constant string of some successes and some disappointments. If every single little disappointment is uh, treated like some sort of colossal failure, then you may never ever try again. And I think that's extremely sad, and it's one of the reasons we don't see as much uh, entrepreneurship here as we would like. I just want to add, I echo everything you just said. And one other point I want to add. We often talk about the word entrepreneurship, meaning that everyone should go be an entrepreneur. Not necessarily so. Um, I definitely encourage that, absolutely. But not everybody is an entrepreneur. So, not everybody's like a freak. You know, sometimes you need the guys that can take care of those entrepreneurs to help build that team. Because if everybody's just going off and building their own ideas, there's nothing there to support them. And sometimes the best entrepreneurs are only as good as the team that they establish around them. So absolutely, you need to have great ideas and encourage everybody to think about what they could possibly build. But I also want to encourage those that don't necessarily feel that they are entrepreneurs to think, well, actually, you could have a big role to play working and supporting um, your entrepreneur or a team of new, new thinkers. I think that's a very important point. And it's something that academia is slowly catching up to, that you need an ecosystem of different skills. And you need to value all of them, because if everybody was just having the big ideas and throwing them out, nothing would ever get done. Frankly, if all there was in the world is people like the people around this panel, nothing would be happening, right? No one would be doing the plumbing, no one would be fixing the electrics, no one would be cleaning out the sewers. Um, and so, but you need to value the jobs that make the structure possible. And there's this, one of the, the things about the competition aspect um, that has always existed in businesses now coming to academia is that the, the one at the top is rewarded and it's seen that if you're a king or an emperor or a queen I suppose you know you get all you get the badge that says go you and then everybody else is sort of ignored as though they had no role to play and I think that the 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 acceptance like how we give credit where credit is due for the system because one person does not ever produce an idea they were given help they were given an environment they were given an opportunity Thing, things help them, and sometimes that's just the system. Maybe they had a school with encouraging teachers, and you have to recognize the system and all the different parts of it and value those people uh, and not just go, oh, you're the one that popped out the top, here's your badge. I think, and that's something that society is so desperate to do, like, where are the winners? And, you know, you've got you've to allow for the, the idea that everybody is needed to, to push things forward. So more cooperation, more teamwork. Yeah, more flatter, flatter structures and more freedom within those structures and less focus on tick box exercises. You know, how many things have you done? How many, uh, in, you know, in academia, it's how many papers have you written? How many proposals? How many postdocs have you got? Um, and I'm, I work, I'm very lucky. I work at an institution where they have a very modern attitude to that. And they go, you know what? If you're doing good things, we're not going to count. We trust that if we employ good people and let them do things, then any metric that counts when we're assessed against it, th good things will pop out the top, but we're not gonna point to everyone and say, you have to do one of these and one of these and one of these. We're just gonna create a functioning, creative ecosystem because academia is creative. And then we assume that any system worth its salt that looks at that is gonna appreciate the good things that come from it. 
how do you ensure sustainability and profitability? I'd like to build on that as well. One of the things that, um, uh, that we've looked a lot at uh, previously is actually not everything is profit driven. Um, we, we, maybe we're moving to an age where there's different um, reasons for running a business. And I, I guess I, I ought to come to you first of all. You've got very clear motivation. How do you make sure that you can be uh, profitable and keep going and got the social conscience that goes with that? Um, I work with some of the best hackers in the world period. And you can't replicate them, nor can you scale their one. I mean, even if we were the best consultancy in the world, there's only so many hours in the day and time that they could actually work on projects before their brains fry. So excellent point. One of the things that we've been working on is we ran a training program behind closed doors just to see what exactly did people pick up on? You know, what was, what was scalable? And how could we take what was in, let's say, your brain and make it in an immortal program that would allow people to access it. So information sharing, setting the bar of what good ethical hacking standards and practices could be. And actually it was really successful. So we launched then a uh, free training module, again, just to see what the public now thought, not just the you know, tech geeks, but just anybody, you know, whether you're a postman or a school teacher, if you wanted to try this. And again, it's actually taking off really well. So what we're looking to do is package, not necessarily someone's brain, but the way that they think by creating the standard and moral efficacy around how he you know, interacts with systems, how he approaches big problems, and create like a, like a Netflix, this kind of subscription-like model uh, around different various you know, attack vectors, different tools used. And so for that exact reason, because it's not just, oh, you go to one course, you get a bunch of letters, now you're a hacker. Not at all. So we're back to creating patterns, helping Cre reinforce yeah. patterns. Well, exactly, and making it more accessible to the guy so it sits on your laptop. It's not on some lab far away that you have to take time off work to do that you can actually access it any time of the year and so this is one thing we've created. Helen. Well academia didn't used to be motivated by profit but now that governments are shoving us all into impact it it's, it's people are trying and the thing is it doesn't work it fundamentally does not work for academia because the, the best things you find out are the things you didn't know were there to be found out. And you need the freedom to poke. And in, in fail is the way a business would say, you know, we'll do this at a set of experiments. And it didn't really go anywhere. But we, we've learned that, we, you know, we learned something from it, which is that there wasn't really anything to find out. And then we'll go off in another direction. And so the, the profit model absolutely does not work for finding the foundational knowledge, uh, the sorts of things academia does. Um, and you need the freedom to play and you need time to do it in. And so I worry about the encroachment of profit and the pushing of business into academia. And it's not that I, I, the links are brilliant, but I think that pushing that is the only way to get academia, to move academia forward is a mistake because it holds us back because but, it's the wrong model. But Nick, you need academia or you need profit. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, academia is a different world than the for-profit business uh, space. And there are incredible innovations that come out of long-term investments that are happening because researchers can take a decade to go work on something. In the business world, it's nearly impossible to think that way because you will not build shareholder value and you will not be able to uh, bring in um, investment if you have a plan on that time horizon. It's extremely unusual. Um, so when approaching building a business plan, you need to have a pathway toward creating a sustainable business model. So we're here talking about disruptive business strategies. Ultimately, 
this is a for-profit industry, and so you need to be able to create profit so that you can reinvest it and continue to survive. Um, my perspective on doing that as an entrepreneur in a high-tech startup, um, we raised and had to raise an enormous amount of capital in order to have that long-term perspective. We convinced investors that we had a strategy that would take time. Part of that is patience. A lot of people don't know, but Airbnb, which is widely recognized as one of the most successful platform plays of the past decade, just had its first profitable quarter. 10 years in the making. So really? it can take time. Yeah. Amazing. And so that's a technology startup story. But you know, uh, people that are running mom and pop businesses around town here and everybody else, there are a million pathways to success to have a way that you can live a life that's happy for you. And so it doesn't just have to be the celebrity, uh, you know, superstar um, killing it. A million pathways to success. I yes. like that phrase. It seems like a great phrase to leave today's podcast on. I'd like to thank everyone here at TEDx Manchester for coming along and for my three guests as well, Helen, Jennifer and Nick. Thank you very much and look forward to the rest of the afternoon sessions. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Jennifer Akuri, Nick Carey and Dr. Helen Chersky discussing the secrets of disruptive business. Thanks again to our host, Chris Reed from Virgin Media Business, all of our guests at TEDx in Manchester at the brilliant venue home. Remember, for more podcasts and entrepreneurial tips and advice from Virgin Media Business, just head to virgin.com. I'll be back with a new series of the Voom podcast later in the year. But for now, from me, Nikki Beatty, it's goodbye. 